Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writers Jam video podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max and Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker today. He just got done eating two bones and a bowl of food, so it's really just me. Uh, I'm excited because I have Ross Bennis on the show today, and his book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold, which is out now, is one of my favorite kind of books. Um, if you know me, if you've listened to the show, if you know anything about my history, you know I am from Appalachia, and this weird move to the right by Republicans, and particularly in these rural areas, is fascinating to me, both on just an intellectual level, level, but like as someone that cares about democracy in America, these kinds of things are really important. And he's a researcher as well as an author, so this is really an interesting conversation that we're going to have today. Um, He's an award-winning author of three books, including Rural Rebellion. He has written for Entertainment Weekly, Esquire, The Lincoln Journal Star, The Nation, uh, Omaha World Herald, Omaha World Herald, Rolling Stone, The Wall Street Journal, uh, and more. He's a native of Brainerd, Nebraska, and he cheers on the Huskers from New York as an Ohio State fan. I find that humorous, but we will leave that for a different day. Uh, Before we get to our conversation, just a little bit of business. If you've listened to the show you know what's coming. The Jam Proper, our hour-long show, is out every Wednesday. The video podcasts come out-ish on Monday and Friday. A couple things you can do to help us out. Tell your friends about us. That is the best way for us to spread the word. Everybody's back to the gym and they're driving. They're looking for things to keep them occupied. So you should tell them about us. And leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This is particularly important if you have an iPhone or an iPad head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. You can also pop over to our Facebook page, leave us a review there, or you can head over to the website, thewritersjam.com, and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. While you're there, a couple things you can do. You can check out this video podcast series. You can buy any of the books of people that have been on the show by clicking on that bookshop link. If you're looking for a book to read, click our book review section. Or you can just sign up for the newsletter and all of that stuff comes into your mailbox once a month. You can also support the entire Solid Listen podcast network by clicking on the Patreon button for just a couple bucks a month. You'll get all kinds of special content from everybody across the network. It's fantastic. You should do that right now. So Ross and I have this conversation about uh, why he wrote this book, because Um, As you'll hear, this is a uh, it is the same that he's done in the past and that he takes a deep dive into topics. But local politics in Nebraska was not something that he started to write about or that he thought he was going to write about. So I find that interesting. But I've been around researchers enough to know, like most of my life has been covering science, technology, dealing with scientists and people that do basic research and things like that. And when somebody gets a question in their head, when one of these people get a question in their head, they will go deep into it in the way that 
the public, me included, don't always go, right? Like we sort of, even if we drill down a little bit, we don't generally go as deep as people that are doing um, hardcore research. And so that kind of thing is really important. In fact, um, over the next few weeks, I have several different kinds of researchers that are coming onto the show to talk about whatever topic it is they're looking at. Because I think that as someone who was both a magazine writer magazines take deep dives into things but when you do that um even as an author when you do that the deeper you go into a topic the more you realize that you're not an expert on a thing and that's weird because you're also writing about it so you're writing about a thing that like you know you're not an expert on but you're trying to explain it to people and it's this really interesting dichotomy that happens and so when I can get somebody on the show who actually is a writer and does the research and sort of has their head wrapped around stuff, I'm always really excited. So you should be too. You should go out and get this book. It is in the vein of what's the matter with Kansas. It's that kind of book. Um, Ross is from Nebraska, obviously. So this is both personal and political, not to co-opt that term, but that's sort of what this book is. Um, and I'm really excited for you to hear the conversation. I'm really excited to pick up the book and read it. I appreciate you guys taking time out of your day to come spend a little time with Max and I here in the bunker. I hope that your day is going well. I hope that you are taking care of each other. And I hope that you are finding your way back into the world. And I hope for the next half hour, you will sit back and enjoy my conversation with Roth Dennis just i was looking at the three books that you had done and they are like this book is obviously very different than the first two books except for that it's sort of not right like a large part of what you do is research is like deep dives into specific topics to sort of understand what a thing is or, or why a thing is the way that it is um how did you settle on switching from the first two books to nebraska and looking at the politics of where you're from yeah, I suppose uh, two sex research books and then a Nebraska politics book doesn't seem like the most logical progression. Um, and you're right that they are similar and that they both utilize various genres and they are research driven, kind of like academia for general audiences. Yeah, uh, I, I wasn't planning on doing a Nebraska politics book initially. After I did the second sex book, I was working on a book about low culture stuff like pro wrestling which I'm really into. <laughs> and uh, it was after the election of Donald Trump that I, I pivoted because I had so many conversations with people about that topic who um, didn't know any Trump voters because I work in media and I, I live in Brooklyn. So I'm like in a very uh, <laughs> liberal enclave within yeah. a liberal enclave. And um, when they find out I'm from this small town in Nebraska where people tend to be conservative, there was this huge fascination there. And I noticed that towns like my hometown started getting a lot more press coverage, but um, it, it was usually just like cursory. There's just like, it's just like a surface level type stuff. And um, you know, people were kind of depicted as like either they were a conspiracy theorist or they were a coal miner or, you know, there's about three or yeah. four different types of Trump voters yeah. that you saw in news stories. And the people I grew up with weren't like any of those. So I decided to write a book about it. And I, I also was just really fascinated by um, how much my home state had changed. I, I thought it was worth documenting. We've yeah. always been a conservative state, but after the election of Trump, I looked back and I started analyzing our, our local officials too, and realizing just how much they 
were different from the Republicans and, and uh, moderate Democrats we elected, you know, when I was a child. So it's, it's a remarkable shift. And I thought this is the time to do it. If I'm ever going to write about my hometown, this is the time to do it. And I wrote a politics book that um, I never thought I would have done. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm from a small Appalachian town in Ohio and I have a, my family sort of documented back to the 1300s because we sort of, we're like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of, of American history. Like we just sort of keep showing up in all these places, but never in a good way. Um, and, and I had the same thing. Like I actually threw the book out and restarted it after 2016 because it was such a fundamental shift. Like I grew up around what I like to call like rational Republicans. Like most of my family were very, they were conservative and I didn't agree with them on anything, but like, they were not crazy. Like there wasn't this sort of QAnon thing. And even still, my family never really bought into that new stuff. And so when I see people sort of talking about these areas, I'm like, that doesn't really jive with what I saw. I get the analysis, but it didn't really jive with what I saw. And that's been a really weird reckoning to like sort of try to explain what that means. So how do you go about explaining what that means? Because it's such a big question and like, it involves history and politics and sociopolitics and, you know, the founding of America. There's like everything built into this explanation. Well, I, I wanted to, I, I started with a very personal side because I wanted to talk about being in that town for most of my life. Um, so this book was much more personal than my other two, which weren't really <laughs> memoir driven at all. And um, I wanted to explore that this paradox of the people I grew up with. Um, I tend to think, even if I disagree with them on, nine out of 10 political issues. I tend to think of them as very nice, good people who will do the right thing, usually like in a social interaction with a person. Yet they've um, enabled some of the like worst people we've put into office in the last hundred years. And there's a lot to unpack there. So I started with the personal side, like what I saw in that town, what made um, conservative viewpoints seem more logical to me then than I, I feel they are now when I live in this, uh, you know, liberal enclave in a large city. Um, and then I wanted to layer on the, the research and there I, um, I just, I tried to interview like every major political figure our states had during my lifetime and get their points on it and, and see like what they experienced as, as their own parties had changed. So talking to a lot of former or, or a lot of um, even current Republicans, but people who were in office recently, and um, I also, you know, dived into the academic research too. So it's a lot to unpack, but the personal is probably the first thing. And that's easier to do though on some topics. Like if I want to talk about abortion or um, healthcare, which are big political issues, I could talk about my experiences with those issues and what the viewpoint was in Brainerd versus um, Brooklyn, New York. But then when you want to talk about how the political parties changed, I that's where I struggle with the personal because I, I don't have a strong history of, uh, of being an activist in a party or, or being involved with the state legislature or anything like that. So that's where it had to be like third person research driven because it's not like I spent every day in my life, you know, attending the legislative sessions or yeah. anything. That's where I leaned on interviews and research. So let me ask, because one of the issues that I, as I've been writing about this is that um, for me, like as I've sort of struggled putting this thing together is 
it's like I like I have a lens of my small town, a five thousand person. It's a small, you know, five ten thousand people. It's a very small place, um, and so it wasn't until I left, right? Like I'm wearing my Berkeley shirt. Like I went to Berkeley. Um, you know, I've sort of I lived in Austin. I lived in Boston. I've lived in blue areas, and that was when I began to become. Not that I wasn't aware of race and. Um, sexuality and things like that. But again, that was not the lens into which I viewed my town. And it wasn't until I left and was like, oh my God, like even my perception of what this place is, is a very simple myopic view because the rest of the world that doesn't look and sound like me has a totally different experience with towns like the one that I grew up in. Like, how did you, how does, how did, as you were writing, how did you struggle with those issues of race and gender and sexuality and how you viewed what had changed. Yeah, well, I, I, I put the, uh, the most race discussion is uh, in the chapter I have on immigration. So that's where it came up the most. And for that, um, I went to, there are other small towns in Nebraska that um, <laughs> aren't like mine where yeah. uh, they're, you know, most of them are almost entirely white. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's, that's the most common place um, small town in those areas, but there are towns that have changed a lot um, and have had um, many immigrants in them. And I've I focused on those towns instead of my hometown on those on that chapter because they're been affected by the you know voting on immigration. Like uh, in my town, I, I think people didn't view it as much in racial terms, even if that's how their votes effectively were, because they're so isolated. Right. And and they don't they don't ever you don't ever come into contact with anyone right. who isn't white. So you probably aren't even thinking that it's a racial thing. You're just voting for some legal precept of being against illegal immigration. But yeah. when you go to a town that has a meatpacking plant and they've uh, seen their demographics change dramatically, when a law like that goes into effect it has a huge impact on humans' lives in that town. And um, that's, that's how I dealt with it um, in that issue. Um, but it, it is tough though, because I do wanna criticize the people I grew up with for who they've put in office and, and some of these policies they've enacted, which are very um, oppressive to immigrants. But I also don't wanna just be like a snob to them and look down on them and say, well, look, since I moved away, I'm so much smarter than you. Um, you know, you're just a bunch of, you know, backwater hillbillies. Cause that, that approach has been utilized by other authors. It has, so I try but, to be sympathetic. You know, as again, like as someone who's from that area, like I think that's a false dichotomy, right? Like there's a multitude of ways to present those. And like, I've had to deal with, you know, my family, while they were Democrats and they fought on the side of the union, like, I mean, they had slaves, right. And like, this obviously goes back to the the 1800s, but like even as I dealt with the people into today, like for me, it's been a struggle because I have the natural inclination that everybody does, I think, which is, well, like I sort of understand them and I want to make sure I'm fair. But then there's this other part of me that's like, yeah, but, we, you know, like we also have to talk about the shit that we did, right? Like the shit mm -hmm. that went on in those places that is like that I find is the big struggle with writing about stuff because people always talk about the way media portrays stuff, but like, you're like me, you're from that place. Like the fact that you happen to write for a major media thing now doesn't like, doesn't mean you're a big media person because you come from that area. So did you find yourself with that push and pull sort of struggling of like, okay, like how do I tell a truth that may sting them, 
but that needs to be mm-hmm. told, but that isn't coming at it from, you know, a fly and somebody who's dropping in and they're like, well, how could they live like this? And you're like, well, there's a lot of reasons why people live like that. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of religion discussion in the book, particularly uh, in in, in abortion chapter. Yeah. Because I think it's had a a huge effect on our, our national politics, but also state politics. And I have had some people email me uh from nebraska who believed i was too critical of the church um and that they they didn't think the church was political as i made it out to be but um (laughs) i I, that was my experience and i i know they don't like to hear that but i i felt that was um a true thing that's happening and if you didn't think the church was being very overtly political in a um, mostly conservative way i think people have their their ears closed so and I had written about that before for some um, like Esquire and Deadspin. Um, so it wasn't the first time I did it, but I expanded upon it significantly um, in the book. But uh, I, I know that discussion is going to anger people in my own diocese <laughs> to a degree. Yeah. But I, I, I felt that it ha- had to be said, though, because it, it's just the reality of the situation there. And a lot of the onus and the blame I put is more on the, like, you know, bishops or uh, even when it's from a partisan point of view, more on the the Republican Party itself than just the, um, you know, individual people who are in the pews, because I I think they tend to follow those leaders and and those leaders don't have to take that direction. I mean, there's kind of a chicken and egg situation there. But yeah, one of the things that has like I've read a lot, I grew up reading a lot of bell hooks like that was she was, um, you know, writing, writing about this stuff for you and I were ever writing about this stuff. Right. Um, and I do find it interesting that, again, having come from a small place, but lived in a big places, the difference between sort of the personal interactions that happen in that town. Right. Because in my town, and I'm assuming in your town uh, as well, um, you I would see people being racist as a kid like that, like that. I now recognize I'm like, oh, this thing that they said or whatever is not right. Um, And yet everybody still lived together and everybody was still around each other. And it's the sort of and then I went to the city and it's like you don't know anybody because you live in New York City. Right. There's three, four, five million people there. And there becomes this different level of what those sort of toxic things I use race, but any of the toxic things that happen that allow these discussions to happen. Um, I, fi- I, I find that dynamic in my life really interesting, like the difference between these small towns where you sort of know everybody and these big places where you sort of don't like, did you struggle with any of that or did, did you touch on any of that in the book in an overt way? 
what I touched on though a lot in the book though too is the small town life uh, because you have to deal with people you interact yeah. with they tend to be they tend to treat the people they deal with better like I get yelled at more for random stuff you know here in New yeah. York by someone who I'll never see again yeah uh, than, than I would for, you know if I could live in a small town for years yeah. because that's what I mean it's the impersonal nature of yeah. whatever anger or hate you have in a city can spew out in a way that in a small town it doesn't it's not that it doesn't happen it just doesn't happen as you're walking down the street <laughs> yeah well, no, no, I, I, what I wrote about in the book is you know in small town on the surface there's a great sense of community people are friendlier because they have an incentive to be but this uh resentment will bubble up at times even in this like you know quaint little yeah way of life they have it'll bubble up if you're uh, getting drunk with people in the garage and uh they start to like really let loose on something that they've been holding in and it bubbles up um in the ballot box like uh you know really proudly voting for some um you know reactionary person when if you saw the interactions that these people have in their normal day-to-day -day, you may not predict that they would feel that way yeah but and i do. know for, for me it's been a precipitous you know again like my my immediate family has not i i am you know i knock wood all the time like they're conservative but like they've sort of stayed in that reagan conservative realm of like you know sort of early reagan right like before the sort of christian coalition really coalesced um, and I understand people's disagreement with that part of the party, but like, it was always a rational, like I understood why they felt that way. And then this other part of my town has become absolutely part of the cult, right? Like they are, they're not Republicans. They are Trumpsters. And that, it's, that's a different, it's a different thing. It, it yeah. just, it's a different experience because you, they're not even talking about things that the conservatives that I knew talked about. They're, in places that I really, I have a hard time understanding and I'm from there. Like, I know how you grew up, like nothing you're saying is true. Like, I know it to not be true from your experience. Like, as you were writing, did you find yourself wrestling with those kinds of like, the difference between sort of traditional conservatives and this like new version of Trump Q stuff? Yeah, no, that, that, that there was a, definitely a division there. Uh, and, you know, it's tough to capture it in a unique way. That's where I leaned on interviews a lot, because I would interview, like, U.S. senator from Nebraska who served in the 90s, who was a Republican, who would, you know, say that, you know, for, like, that person actually has uh, a viewpoint on that issue that's really unique and, and powerful. And, if, like, 1990s Republicans are looking liberal in comparison and, and saying, <laughs> we don't know what happened to our party. That says something. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't think Reagan could get elected in the Republican party today. Yeah. I, well, I don't think Eisenhower, you know, a yeah. lot of those. Uh, but Reagan is the one that everybody sort of recently points to as like, he was the greatest president. Of, and now I'm like, your party wouldn't even reelect him or, or even get him through the, he'd talk about immigrants coming here and like, that'd be the end of his candidacy. Yeah, well, just to give an example of how it has changed, this is like something I spelled in the book, is um, conservatives I knew were, um, like you said, there would be a logical philosophy. Um, one of the tenets is local control. Yeah. So yeah. let's say they don't, they don't like government overreach of like the federal government yeah. telling states what to do, states what to tell yeah. municipalities what to do. Well, in Nebraska, during COVID, the Omaha City Council wanted to pass a mask ordinance. They wanted to be proactive stop the spread of, of, of this virus. And the Republican governor said, 
we don't need to tell people what to do. I and the attorney general will sue the city of Omaha if you try to pass it. So then they didn't pass it. And for the next like three months, you know, this is like a year ago when yeah. things are really, really dire. They didn't have a mask ordinance in the state's largest city. And that's a direct violation of, of a true conservative philosophy because local control would be the city council deciding what the city should do. Yeah. The governor saying that you can't do that uh, is the exact sort of thing that they say they hate. And so that's a Trumpy type of move. That's just like a, you know, silly reactionary thing. And that's what that party has become. I don't call it. Yeah. It's not conservative as, as like you would traditionally define it. It's not like Dwight D. Eisenhower or any of that. Yeah. I mean, I, there truly is a Republican party and a Trump party and watching again my small town sort of divide amongst that and you see ohio like ohio which was once sort of reliably a purple place you know where it was sort of a bellwether that you could say well this is going to be a, is now very reliably a republican and leaning trump kind of place and it is unrecognizable to me in a lot of places and i spent you know a large part of my life there and it was one of the reasons that I, you know, when when we first started talking, I was like, oh, yeah, like these kinds of books, I think, are really important because magazine articles don't really cut like unless you get a New Yorker 25,000 word, you know, cover yeah. story. And there's one of those. <laughs> you know? yep. like, it's really hard to delve into this topic in anything other than. You know, there's not a Rick Bragg anymore who has space in the New York Times to just say, well, I'm going to go into these small towns and write about them. Um, and so spending a book length on that, I think is very interesting in a, in a not sort of not like, you know, Sarah's flyover. It's not, it's not an analysis of the media and the way people look at it. It is literally like, this is one little small place. And here's what I saw. That seems like an interesting perspective and one that like we all need to be. And I don't even know if the world at large needs it so much as like people like us need it. Like people that are from those areas, I think, need to like really have a reckoning with each other. Yeah. Um, and like you said, it's just one little place. I, I use the approach of this is what I knew. Yeah. It's very specific. It's a specific time, specific place. But um, what's happening there has happened in a, in a lot of places. Every, so I mean, everywhere. Use that local example to show the craziest. Like I mentioned the, the mask ordinance. There's yeah. been, um, like we, we, there's I a ask, lot of stuff like that. Can I ask how much have you gone back? Like, so for me, part of the reason that I want to write the book is so that I can go back into the area that I'm from and have these discussions with, with, with the yeah. people that I grew up with. Right. Like I don't need to send it to my friends at Berkeley. Like, you know, I mean, they need to learn some stuff about that, but like they sort of understand but I feel like some of that problem is in those local towns is that people have left and they don't have the kinds of discussions that this book is bringing up. Like how and much, the, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I even mentioned the book that I'm part of the problem, like brain drain. And yeah, then me too. <laughs> uh, when, when people in small towns have become more hostile to like, or, or conservatives in general, become more hostile to, to higher education, the benefits of higher, the people who have benefited from higher education, in those towns have often left. Yeah. Like I got a degree from the University of Nebraska. I had a pleasant experience. If I was at the bar and, you know, someone was saying, oh, it's a leftist indoctrination camp, it'd be someone like me who would say, well, actually, it was a very, you know, pleasant experience. And my professors, right. while they may be liberal, you know, like they just wanted people to participate and they weren't trying <laughs> to indoctrinate anyone. But I, I'm not there. And many of my friends who feel that way 
aren't there because we used our degrees and we moved to Denver and right. Minneapolis and, you know, places like that. I'm, yeah. I'm in, I'm in New York city. So Austin, Berkeley. Problem. Yeah. Like all the places I went. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to um, have conversations with my friends. It's been tougher during COVID before COVID. Yeah. The la- this is about a three-year project, this book and the other like two years, I would go back for um, a week or two, twice a year. So we're looking, I'd be in Nebraska for probably between like two to five weeks yeah. a year. And I would see family and I would be going there anyways, but then yeah. I'd also do a lot of reporting and have these conversations. Now we're in a weird situation where I have a book about Nebraska out and this is the longest I've ever gone without visiting it because of COVID. <laughs> I'm visiting it in like two weeks. It's been over well over a year now. I don't normally go that long. I hope to have some conversations like that. And I'm sure um, there's been some coffee talk uh, at the bar uh, about it because there's not a lot of people releasing books yeah. um, in, in that area. So maybe it's generated some discussion. Um, I, I'm curious to see if they're going to just dismiss me as like, oh, he's a he's an elitist now. You know, yeah, I'm, he's left. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I grew up in the town of, you know, 300 and my dad's a, a plumber and, you know, I got Pell Grants to go to a state university, but I'm sure I'm an elitist now to yeah. some people. It's, I've told the story on the program, like uh, my baseball, I played baseball, of, you know, for a long time. And like my from the very early age, my nickname was the professor. And I've told folks that was a pejorative. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was not a <laughs> they were calling you an egghead right yeah because i was always reading a book on the bus or wherever we were going i'm you know i'd shoot the shit yeah. but like also i'm like ah, i'm gonna go read this book and they're like ah the professor's at it again and like it's a it, but it's also why and i think um you know we'll we'll wrap it up with this is that i've told people i can also go back because no matter what they say to me I grew up there. Like, I know all these people. I'm like, you literally can't say shit to me. And that, yeah, you can insult me, but like, you lived in my basement for three years. Like, what are you talking about? Like, like, you know me. And I find that like, when I go home, we have a, there's a bar and like my, uh, a lot of my classmates will, will, you know, send out a Facebook email and people show up. And the conversations that we have in person are so different than the shit that you see on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, totally different. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. It's a lot harder to um, just antagonize someone and and throw them under the bus and call them some generic uh, pejorative when you're um, face to face, especially if you know the person. That's what I mean. Like, we've all known each other since we were five years old. Like, what are you going to say to me? Come on. Like, come on. You know, like particularly what I know, like your kids are in college. Like, shut up. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's, I guess what I get at with these books and stuff is that it's it's important for people outside of those regions to read them, but it's equally as important for people like us to make sure we keep going back to those places and having those conversations. Cause it's you and I are the ones we're the face and the voice of the people that can go safely to those areas and have that conversation. Yeah. Right. Like that's not other people's discussion because they can't come in and do it. Cause otherwise, you know, shit, if you moved into my, town i don't know if this is the way it was with you but like in and you were 10 years old you're still an outsider to this day yeah (laughs) (laughs) and they're distrustful of media so if someone from the times wanted to stop in my town like they're not gonna get no personal story from them no they're not getting shit um well listen it was great talking to you uh i am real i'm excited to read this book it's called rural rebellion it's out now yeah yep Yep. Any place where people buy books online these days until everything opens up again. Yep. That's what I say. I, I, I I tell them bookshop is, is better than Amazon. If you have to do online. Yes. 
that is where I promote everywhere or like, and use bookshop to find your local bookstore and buy it yep. through their bookshop link. Yep. Well, listen, it was great talking to you. Um, I can't wait to read the book and I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Hey, I love chatting with you too, Brad. That was Ross Bennis. His book, Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold is out right now. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors we talked about at the top of the show. First, tell your friends about us. Second, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And particularly if you have an iPhone or iPad on Apple Podcast. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. Don't forget, we have these video podcasts coming out sporadically on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel, generally Mondays and Fridays. And you can always catch the audio wherever you listen to podcasts. And the jam proper is out every Wednesday. So get yourself subscribed so you never miss an episode. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. A well-told story has the power to transport you to places you've never been. And if you enjoy books and travel, you are going to love our podcast, Strong Sense of Place. I'm Mel. And I'm Dave. Every two weeks, we get curious about one destination and discuss five great books that took us there on the page. We start with an overview of what makes that place different than anywhere else on Earth. And then we tackle a round of two truths and a lie to explore stories behind that place. But the heart of our show is our book recommendations. We share why we love each title with no spoilers. Take an imaginary trek with us through Iceland, sip Uzo in Athens, or virtually ride the rails on an epic train adventure. Strong Sense of Place was featured in Apple's Top 10 Podcasts for the Arts. If you love books and travel, come along with us. Listen to Strong Sense of Place on your favorite app or visit us at strongsenseofplace.com. 